Dear Father, for all that you do for us this morning, Father, I lift up praise and thanks on behalf of this church. For the skill and courage and sacrifice of the youth in our church this morning, Father, that that you have shown in, in the work of their hands in this service. Thank you, Father, that their hearts are inclined toward you, that they come and that they participate in this church and that they are a valued participant. For their hearts, Father, the fact that they want to know your word as as much as we do as adults, Father, that they are inclining their ear toward you. Thank you for the parents, Lord, that have raised them and continue to raise them in your ways, in homes that are devoted to serving you. These are blessings, Father, that many people lack and that many people desire. And they are in our midst and it is a, a joy, Father. We thank you. And I pray, Father, that the the time as adults that we've spent in your word here on Sunday mornings as we've gone about the work of this church and the ways you've called us, I pray that's been the example that's helped set them on that path, Father, that you're blessing the faithfulness of the families here, as I know you are. Let us see that connection so that in the days when we tire and we worry about whether we have the opportunity to, to do all that you call us to do, when the world distracts us and when our our own desires pull us aside, Draw our mind back, Father, to the blessings and the benefits that come from steadfastness, consistency, dedication, to setting that example for our children so that we can see the fruit of it in our life, but also in theirs. Thank you, Lord, for that blessing. And as we turn to your Bible this morning, to your word, Father, we we confront challenging things as, as we usually do, but especially perhaps this morning and in weeks to come. And we thank you, Lord, that that you can teach us through your word, that your spirit is active and And can show us these things in the proper way. We seek his counsel, Father. And may it come into our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we're in chapter 5 of Hebrews. And this morning we're going to begin an examination of what I think is easily the most controversial and perhaps the most debated warning in the book of Hebrews. The third warning. And I'll give you a spoiler right up front. We aren't going to get into the heart of the warning today. There's some setup that's required. It's in the late verses in chapter five, early verses of chapter six. We need to do that early work if we're going to hope to get the warning correct when we arrive there. So it'll be in my next time in the pulpit that we'll actually conclude the warning or get into the heart of it, I should say. Today, we've got to set it up, though. Now, the issue that the writer is concerned with in the warning of chapter six finds its origins in his conversation in chapter five. If you remember from last week in chapter five, he was trying to explain the high priesthood of Jesus. And he was about to explain to this church how Christ had inherited his priestly order, that is the order of Melchizedek, and that it was a greater order than the one given through the law, the Aaronic priesthood. But then the writer, if you remember, pauses at verse 11 in chapter 5. And he paused because he felt the need to chastise the church for not having spiritual maturity, at least not enough, if they're going to handle The discussion of Melchizedek, his comments in chapter five, verse 11, kind of remind me of a famous line from a movie I remember uh, when I was in college. Remember the movie A Few Good Men, Jack Nicholson? He sits there on the stand in the trial of that famous scene. and He says, you want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Remember that? I think that's essentially what the writer is saying. He's worried that the audience can't handle this truth. And yet they need this truth. And because of its importance, he can't neglect to give it to them. This is a truth that will guard them ultimately from committing mistakes that may injure their walk with Christ. How can he hold back on a truth like that? So as we pick up today, 
What's going to follow is the writer's concern for his audience, specifically a concern that they haven't done the work necessary in their own spiritual development to be ready for this difficult concept, this difficult teaching. And so now that brings the warning into view. The warning here is about just such a problem. What happens if we are not strong enough students of Scripture? And as I said, the warning generates a lot of disagreement in the church, among theologians, among even common Christians. But that does not mean, the disagreement that exists around this warning does not mean that it's impossible or, frankly, even that difficult to arrive at a correct understanding of what the writer is saying here. After all, the Lord did not give us scripture so as to confuse us. And if we remain confused, it's only because our own biblical scholarship is lacking in some regard. And I think you're going to see as we go through this warning in the coming weeks that the key to understanding it is the familiar refrain you've heard me mention from the pulpit many times in the past. Context, context, context. If we get the context right, if we understand what the writer's talking about, if we understand who he's talking about, what the issues are, then we're not going to have much struggle with the warning. But as I said, that awaits. Let's start up with the preliminaries. That's in verse 11 again in chapter 5 and then into chapter 6 as we go today. Starting in verse 11, let me read through to verse 14. In chapter 5, the writer writes, Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. In verse 11 again, let's recap. He says, concerning him, that is Melchizedek, I have a lot to say. And then he says it's hard to explain. As we learned last week, that phrase hard to explain in Greek, the original language in which this writer wrote, it literally means susceptible to misinterpretation. In other words, he knows his audience is likely to misunderstand the truth he's trying to relay to them because they aren't ready for it. They aren't prepared for the complexity of the discussion. And so that's why this writer is worried. Given what we said last week, the writer's not incapable of explaining it. The writer is concerned that his audience isn't ready to understand it. And he says that problem is because they are dull of hearing. And we looked at that word last week and we came to understand it means lazy. They're lazy. They're lazy at being taught scripture. The fact that he says they are lazy at listening, they become dull of hearing. Listening implies something, doesn't it? Listening implies you're being taught. It means somebody's sending information your way, that they're not paying attention to the instructions of teachers, of those who have been sent by the Spirit to educate them on their own scriptures. They aren't merely lazy at listening to the subject of Melchizedek. They're lazy at listening to God's word generally. This is a problem with their scholarship, not with their understanding of a particular issue. It reminds us that, as Paul says in Ephesians, he gives to the church some who are, and then he lists various gifts in the body, including, among them, teachers. And then he goes on to say, for the edification of the saints, for the equipping, for the work of ministry. It reminds us that though, yes, we are all taught by the same spirit and we all have access to that spirit. If we pretend that that means we don't need teachers, not only are we fooling ourselves, but we're shooting ourselves in the foot. If we didn't need someone else, a human being, that is, to instruct us from time to time, if that wasn't true, then we wouldn't have teachers in the body of Christ by gift, would we? Why gift us with something we don't need? 
It's self-evidently the case that when we need to know something, occasionally we may have the answer come directly by our own scholarship, and that's expected. But by that same token, there'll be times when God uses someone else to bridge that gap for us so that the body is working together. And this church, in whatever way, in some fashion, they've become lazy at listening to other people teaching them. And as a result, they're not prepared. So having thrown down this gauntlet of accusation, you might call it, the writer now has to explain what he means. He can't just say this in verse 11 and then go nowhere with it. Well, of course, he goes somewhere quite far with it. In fact, not only does he go into the end of this chapter with it, all of chapter 6 is talking about this problem. He will not get back to the subject of Melchizedek until chapter 7. That's how much time he feels he has to devote to this concern that he has. So let's move into his concerns. Verse 12, the writer says, these believers ought by now to be teachers. Now, when he says by now, he means at this point in their walk as Christians. We know historically this church, the one that he's writing to, or the churches generally of the diaspora, which received this letter, they have been operating for at least a decade, in some cases maybe longer. So this letter is coming somewhere around A.D. 65, 66, 68, and the church had been founded in most of these regions well before that, decades in some cases before that. That's plenty of time. That is plenty of time to develop spiritual maturity and a knowledge of Christ. It is plenty of time. These churches cannot say to this writer, well, you can't blame us for not being ready for such a difficult conversation. We haven't had enough time to get ready for it. And he says, no, 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 no. By now, by now, you ought to be teachers. And when the writer says that, he's not suggesting that the entire church body should be engaged in teaching as a role in the church necessarily. What he means is individually, you ought to be able to teach. You ought to have enough knowledge that if someone came to you seeking your assistance on matters like this, you would be prepared to handle that conversation. Obviously, there are people in the church more capable of teaching than others, and that's usually a sign of their gifting and so on. But if someone has the ability to relay information to someone else as a teacher, what does that mean? Among other things, it means they're probably a pretty good student themselves. I'll tell you this from my own experience. I never became quite as good a student of Scripture until I was put in the position to have to teach others. And I think that's generally our experience in any walk of life, right? When someone else depends on us, it ups our game for what we do in our own scholarship. So he means, first of all, as a church, you should have had this knowledge already. You ought to be able to teach it. But secondly, I think he means that as a church body, collectively, they should have matured to the point where they could be a source of edification to other church bodies. That he wouldn't have to be writing them on something like this if they had reached the point where they should be. Instead of being dependent on him for instruction on basic things, they would already be a source of blessing for others in this arena. But that's not how it is. Obviously, the writer expected them to be mature, and obviously, for some reason, they are not. For every member of every church body that has ever existed, There is the expectation of Scripture that we are all personally embarking on a journey of spiritual maturity. This is not a unique command for one period in time to one group of churches. Simply put, spiritual maturity is not an optional pursuit by any of us at any time. It is our call. It is our mission to become spiritually mature. And that maturity demands becoming knowledgeable about the Bible. There's no two ways about it. There is no way that I can understand how a Christian can become spiritually mature while at the same time neglecting study of the word. Those two things are not compatible according to Scripture, nor by our own personal experience. 
That also includes, by the way, understanding even the most difficult passages and concepts in Scripture. We aren't to shy away from doctrine. There are certain topics within the the body of Christ that we all generally get to some level because they're introduced to us early. We will understand who Christ is, some stories from the gospel, some of the parables, the passion of Christ, things that are commonly understood within the church most of the time. But friends, that's not the end of our work in maturity. That's the beginning. If you get into a conversation about soteriology or eschatology or ecclesiology or pneumonology, then you're starting to reach into the depths of what we're supposed to know. And if some of those words are foreign to you, to your ears, well, then just make it your goal to go find those concepts in Scripture because that's the maturing call of the believer. And this writer is unhappy the church has been engaged in a walk for some period of time and they haven't ventured into that stuff. Instead, he says, you become lazy. You become disinterested in learning Scripture. Disinterested. It should worry us that in our day today, there are so many churches who have abandoned serious study of Scripture under the tutelage of qualified teachers. We're at the risk, I think, of abandoning an entire generation of Christians to biblical illiteracy and to do so because we're trading it for experiences, for entertainment, for fellowship, for something else. And that's only going to lead to bad things eventually, both for them individually and for the body. Now, I want you to look at the second half of verse 12. And into verse 13, as the writer begins to explain the consequences of regressing in this way, of becoming spiritually immature, he says lazy Christians don't just fail to mature. He says they are regressing in their understanding. They need re-education. Did you catch that? He says you need someone to come back to you now, wherever you are, and reteach you the basic truths of the Christian faith. The elementary principles of the oracles of God. Those are the basic truths of the Christian faith. The Greek word for elementary here is important. It literally means to describe the letters of the alphabet all lined up. It literally means lining up letters. Think about it this way. Have you ever heard of someone learning their ABCs? It's the same exact term in the Greek. What he's saying is you still need someone now to come back and teach you the ABCs of the Bible. It says that if you are not progressing, you are regressing. There is no standing still. He says they've come to need milk again, again, not just solid food. Obviously, when he speaks of milk or solid food, he's not worried about their dietary habits here. Those are metaphors. The Bible uses these terms in several places as metaphors for consuming the word of God. You remember in first Corinthians in our study there, we heard Paul say something of that regard in chapter three when he said, and brethren, I could not speak to you as spiritual men. But as men of flesh, as to infants, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, because you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able to. Do you remember that? Same idea. They're using similar language. They're both explaining how the Spirit walks every Christian through a building block process of learning. And when we're new in the faith, everything is new. Everything is unfamiliar. He'll take us through the basic concepts first. We don't know where to start. We may not even know what part of the Bible to study first, but the Spirit works us through that. Sometimes in our own walk, other times through teachers, but in any case, gently teaching us simple things. And he'll take one simple concept of faith and he'll lay a foundation with it. And then he'll build on top of that. We learn first about the Lord and who he is and what he did on the cross. And we learn his commandments and we learn about his life and death and the meaning of some of those things. And then we get on to some tougher stuff. We begin to learn about the need to put away sin, about loving one another in the body of Christ. We learn about the nature of the Lord's return. 
And that causes us to begin to think about, well, how did things begin? If there's an end, how did it all begin? And then maybe we get into creation and then maybe we find out evolution is false. And then we start to rethink a whole bunch of other stuff because of that new knowledge. And then our attention begins to look at eternity and we gain eyes for eternity and we begin to think about our judgment and we begin to think about the things Christ promised to us and the coming kingdom. And suddenly we're thinking in a whole new way about not only this world, but the next. And that's a building block process. And the writer compares those steps of learning to moving from milk to solid food. And think about the process in a literal way. It makes it much clearer. An infant cannot digest more complex things. It doesn't work. The body's not ready for anything more than milk. The mother's milk is the perfect meal for an infant. It strengthens the body. It causes the body to grow. But at some point, because of that growth, milk is no longer ideal. It's ironic in a way when you think about it. What was once the perfect food will now eventually kill the child if it's its only diet. If you leave somebody on milk for too long, they grow anemic. They get weak. They actually stop growing. That's the problem for this church. Instead of using their knowledge of the ABCs of the Bible as stepping stones into deeper and more complex things. Instead, he says they became lazy. And when you become lazy, you stop maturing. And because they stop maturing, they start regressing and they're staying on milk and they're killing themselves spiritually as a result. These Christians needed to relearn their ABCs so that they could move forward again. Friends, let's not overlook this danger because it's so prevalent among many in the church, if not in this room, certainly other places. And we don't acknowledge the seriousness of it. There is real present danger in not making a life goal of learning the scriptures. There's real danger in that, not just ignorance, but spiritual danger in that. You and I may think we have enough knowledge of the Bible today, and perhaps we do considering where we are in the walk of Christ that we have. Perhaps for where we are, we're at about the right point of maturity. But what about tomorrow? What consequences are you going to face tomorrow? What circumstances are going to come down the way? What false doctrines are you going to encounter and perhaps fall prey to because you haven't been built up by the right things out of Scripture? What crisis of faith is going to come our way and cause us to waver in our walk with Christ. Well, we don't know, but the Lord does, and he's prepared everything that we need to be ready for such moments in the word of God, so long as we're giving over to it. The writer is telling us, if we don't keep moving forward to greater things, we're in danger of losing what we have. And whatever we have learned is no longer going to be enough to get us to the work of pleasing the Lord at some point. At some point, the demands keep going up and we're not ready to face them because our flesh and the enemy never stops trying to undermine us. Keep that in mind. You may slow down in your pursuit of maturity, but your enemy never slows down trying to stop you, trying to pull you back. That's why we're called to increasing degrees of knowledge and spiritual maturity. Like the old story goes, whichever dog you feed gets stronger. So if you're not feeding your spirit with solid food, then you should expect to regress to places where your flesh is ruling you or the enemy is gaining a greater stronghold in your life. But one way or the other, you're moving backward instead of forward. And at the end of verse 14, he shares what is the reward of seeking spiritual maturity. The writer says spiritual maturity gives us the ability to discern good and evil. Knowing how to recognize the schemes and the temptations of the enemy is the fruit 
of spiritual maturity. But conversely, spiritual immaturity leaves us vulnerable and evil things can get a foothold. Friends, if you can spot evil, then you can steer clear of its consequences. But evil does not show up wearing a black hat on a horse. If there's one thing I can impress upon any Christian when it comes to the conversation of what is the value of Bible study, what I tell them is when you think you know what the enemy looks like, you are ripe for a fall because he does not look like you think he looks like. He does not come in a black hat. The Bible says he comes as an angel of light, which is to say he will look like the right thing. He will come as your friend. He will come as your elder. He will come as your pastor. He will come as your neighbor. He will come as your spouse. He will come as a temptation on TV. He will come in a form that when you see it, you like it. But for the counsel of Scripture, giving you discernment in the face of those things. If we lack the ability to discern evil properly, then it's only a matter of time before we stumble and come into an alliance with evil. Not one that will lose our salvation. Let's not get into nonsense. But what we're saying is there are still real consequences to living in ignorance of Scripture. Maybe one day we'll give in to our lust. Maybe one day we'll give in to our anger or our fear or our greed. Maybe one day we'll succumb to false teaching or some false practice in the church. Maybe one day we will offend the Lord with counterfeit or idolatrous worship. Maybe one day we'll fall into some occultic influence. Maybe one day we'll be rescued from it, but there's no guarantee. And in the meantime, whatever that evil is, there will be consequences for us in playing with that fire. There are consequences. Those consequences will come in many cases here and now in the form of broken relationships, strife, suffering, emotional trauma, and the like. But even if somehow we escape those things or think we're escaping them, friends, there is always eternal consequences. There are always the possibility that our eternal rewards are at risk because we don't please the Lord. So, friends, I can't overstate it. Our goal is to seek spiritual maturity, and we secure that maturity as a matter of practice and training in God's word. Did you notice that at the end of verse 14? He says those who, by practice and training, have developed senses that can discern good from evil. You and I cannot simply become mature as a function of physical age or even the number of years we've been a Christian or how often we come to church on Sunday. It's not a matter of seniority or tenure. It's about practice and training. Practice refers to the regular exercise of spiritual disciplines. And I think principally he's looking at the study of God's word here. But it goes deeper than that. It includes prayer and worship and service and fellowship. You don't practice those things. You won't gain the benefits of them. It's just that simple. May I suggest that those disciplines I just listed should be done in that order by and large. In other words, your first priority is to learn the word of God because that's where it begins. It's been given to us for a reason until we exhaust all that this thing has to say about our life and our circumstances. Why do we need to go anywhere else for that knowledge? Until you know the Bible inside and out, friends, there's no plan B. But then after that, the second priority is prayer, then worship, then service. And then I think, lastly, Fellowship, if you could put a priority to them, that would be the one I would suggest. But I often find Christians do it exactly the opposite. Have you noticed that? Christians love fellowship, and who wouldn't, right? But we will fellowship for hours, and I I think today's an ironic day for this teaching, right? Because we're about to go have a five-hour fellowship at the uh, Twin Oaks place, which is perfectly great. We haven't done one in a while. It's about time. But we won't often spend more than a few minutes each week in study, will we? 
or a few minutes each week in prayer or in worship. If that's our regular pattern, that's not a recipe for spiritual maturity. And therefore, it's a recipe for allowing evil to gain a hold in our lives over time because of our lack of discernment. So if you're stuck in an immaturity rut, if you're kind of finding yourself feeling like some of this applies to you, then where do you go next? Well, the writer begins in chapter six with the exhortation of what we do to avoid this problem. The one that he's highlighted in this church. Look at chapter six, verses one and two. He says, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. There is no two verses that I found in the Bible more convicting of the modern church than these two verses. First of all, the Greek word for elementary here at the beginning It's a different Greek word than the one we studied in chapter 5, verse 12. Remember in chapter 5, verse 12, it was elementary meant the ABCs. Well, here, this word in Greek means the beginning of something. In other words, the writer says, I want you to leave behind the beginning things that you learned about the Christ. Those are the things every Christian learns or should learn at the outset of their walk of faith. These are essential, but they're just the beginning. I want you to go to any group of Christians you might care to and pose this question to them and see what you get. Ask them, what are the foundational things every Christian should learn from the outset? The, the basics of Christianity. This is the list. This is your list. What are the elementary things we're talking about? What constitutes an elementary foundational knowledge as a believer? And the writer gives us six things here that he categorizes as the basics, the beginning of our Christian education. The first Teaching is repentance from dead works. The first thing you should know as a Christian is that works do not and have not saved you. And you repent, that is, you turn away from any thought whatsoever that by your own work, you will make yourself righteous before God. Even after a Christian has heard the gospel, even after they've been saved by faith, it's entirely possible for us to continue thinking, at least for a while, that our own works played some role in obtaining our righteousness. Isn't that natural? I mean, that's how you think before you know it's by faith alone. But even after you come to believe in Christ, I think it's possible for us to think that a little legalism added in is a good thing. Right? It's, it's common. Paul wrote the letter of Romans, in large part, to put an end to that kind of thinking among believers. That works was somehow a part of it. The Jewish background was a part of it. So I think it's natural that we think we give God an assist in our salvation. But Scripture stands ready to assault that notion. So obviously that's a foundational teaching. Friends, it is not by your works that you have been saved. Nor are your works holding you to Christ, nor will your works ever be considered a part of how you are made righteous before God. Step one. Number two, the writer says, we need to leave behind teaching on faith toward God. Now he's speaking here, of course, about the salvation that we have by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's interesting, you know, he says we need to leave that behind as well. He's not diminishing its importance of that truth, nor the necessity of understanding it. He's simply saying, once you understand it, move on. Get on with it. Don't rehash it. It's a building block on top of which you will then reach more challenging concepts. For example, I would think a a more challenging version of that truth is propitiation. What does it mean that Christ is our propitiation. That's built on the foundation of understanding that our faith in his work saves us. 
and on and on. But leave behind the beginning of it. Thirdly, he says, leave behind instructions about washings. The word washings in the Greek here is just baptismos, which obviously you recognize. It can refer, that word can actually refer to a variety of ritual washings, both in the Jewish tradition and elsewhere. But in this context, I mean, look at how he's gone. He's gone from repentance of dead works, faith toward God, baptisms. It would make sense then that he's speaking here about the water baptism that Jesus commanded in Matthew 28. You notice he even uses the word instructions there. That's the word for teaching in Greek. He's saying teaching on baptism. The teaching on baptism is Matthew 28. Jesus saying that the believer is to be water baptized as a response to their salvation. He's saying, look, once you understand that, do it. Once you've done it, move on. Do we really have to keep talking about it over and over and over amongst those for whom it's already understood? No, that's milk. Move on. Fourthly, he says these instructions they must leave behind are those of laying on of hands in the church. Now, this gets people confused, but you have to understand in the in the lexicon of his day, what this referred to is not merely healing or anointing of new leaders, etc. It was a generic term that referred to the entire area of spiritual work of the Holy Spirit. Laying on of hands here refers to the ministry of the Holy Spirit within the body of Christ. So every believer we know from Scripture is granted gifts by the Holy Spirit. We covered that in our first Corinthian study. In the early church, those are often appointed to someone through the laying on of hands from leaders. That's why you have the connection there. Teaching on the anointing of the Spirit had been given to this church already through Paul's letters. First Corinthians already existed by the time Hebrews was written, so they knew this. Every believer then should understand you're gifted by the Holy Spirit. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit. You will have some ministry as a function of the Holy Spirit. He will teach you all things according to God's word. You've got it. Now go run with it. Stop focusing on it. Stop being absorbed and distracted and fixated on it. It's just one element of your Christian walk. It's not the sum of it. It's a building block. If you stay on it, you're just drinking milk. And there are whole churches, denominations and movements that have made this milk building block their whole reason for existence instead of making it an element of something greater. Fifth, move on from teaching on the resurrection of the dead. When the writer says the resurrection of dead, he's referring to the moment in which Christ appears to resurrect the church. We today have come to calling this often by a different term. We call it the rapture. But the church being resurrected is what he's talking about. The moment that we receive our new bodies. It's the day that all church saints are raised into a new body or resurrected, in other words. Now, isn't it interesting that this topic, calling it the rapture, that this topic still holds so much fascination for us in the church, and there's so much controversy still even surrounding this, yet this writer says, friends, that's the simple stuff. You're supposed to get that out of the way in Christianity 101 so that you can move on. You begin to get a sense from just this one all by itself. You begin to get a sense of just how immature the body of Christ is corporately today in the world. When you consider that this is an elementary teaching and we're still debating it. Go to the other ones we've talked about. Gifts of the Spirit or baptisms. How many denominations have split over how you get baptized? And this writer says that's the basic stuff. Move on. When the Bible talks about the hope of Christianity, it's the hope of resurrection that it's talking about. The hope of our faith is that Christ conquered death for us so that death no longer has a power over us. So when our body finally returns to dust, we don't care because we're going to get a new one anyway. We don't see spiritual death because of the price paid on our behalf. How can you move on from something you don't even understand yet? Finally, he says, we should leave behind teaching on eternal judgment. Now, that just refers 
to eschatology in general, but I think it's focused here on what happens to both believers and unbelievers after they die. What, what comes after this life? We know from the unbeliever, of course, that there is an eternal place of punishment prepared. First, it's hell or Hades. Then it becomes the lake of fire into eternity. This is a place of eternal torment from which there is no rescue, according to the scripture. It's an elementary teaching. But as elementary as it is, you still find some in the church today. Perhaps they're believers. I'm not sure. But they're in pulpits. And they're preaching that hell either doesn't exist. You may have heard some of this lately. Some well-known teachers are making these claims now in, in books that there either is no hell or others are claiming that those who are in hell will be released at some point. They maintain that despite clear scriptural evidence to the contrary. They substituted wishful thinking for the counsel of God's word. And yet this writer says, friends, that's not the tough stuff. That's the beginnings. In each of these six examples, you and I can go somewhere today in the church and find individuals or churches or movements or denominations that are still unclear on these six basics, can't we? And perhaps sometimes we're in that boat. I'm not excluding us from the from the possibility that we're still struggling. I'm saying the fact that there is in Christendom this inability to move on and mature is evidence that his concern is still contemporary. Friends, we should have that same concern, whether for ourselves or for our families or for our friends, if we or they continue to neglect the word of God. It's not going to change. Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. We still have laziness of hearing amongst us. We need to press on to maturity. Notice the next verse, verse three. He says, and this we will do if God permits. Pressing on and maturing as a Christian is a matter of both our diligence, but also of God's grace. And so the question comes, if we aren't diligent in applying ourselves to the study of Scripture, if we don't move on from milk and we don't mature, what's God going to do with our laziness? What's he likely to do? Well, the way verse three ends suggests it's an open question. Those who would regress, fall backward, are not guaranteed rescue. There's no promise in Scripture, none that you will find, that says if you become a Christian and if you neglect your spiritual maturity, God nonetheless will rescue you. You will not find that. You will find that the Bible says when we are faithless, he remains faithful. But that's in reference to our salvation. The promise of sanctification is not in the Bible, not in the sense of our maturing in this life. Ultimately, we are sanctified by the glorification of the body. In that sense, we are fully sanctified someday. But that does not mean that the degree of spiritual maturity you have here is suddenly jettisoned to 100 percent on the day of your glorification. That is not the teaching of Scripture. The teaching of Scripture is that though our body will be made sinless, the degree of spiritual maturity we obtain now is what we will carry with us into the kingdom. And the ability to turn from a period of laziness and the resulting spiritual immaturity that develops from it is not guaranteed. The writer says this we will do. We will mature if God permits. That's the subject of his warning, which we will do when we come back. The concern of if we are not attentive to study and growth, if we allow ourselves to slip into a life that is fleshly, immature, 
unable to discern good from evil. If we become the prodigal son, so to speak, and we find ourselves knee deep in mud one day in the spiritual morass that we've created for ourselves from having walked that poor path, do not assume that God has any obligation nor even the will to pull us back. And there is a real penalty awaiting us, a real forfeiture, potentially, if we're not willing to press on. Dear Heavenly Father, a sobering message from Scripture is probably not the preferred one we'd sign up for if you gave us options, is it? We'd much prefer to be affirmed, to be told we have what we need and that we're doing all that we should and that you love us without regard for the consequences of our disobedience and that these things will never be a concern. I, I know, Father, that's what I'd love to hear, too. But, Father, that's not the counsel of your word. So I pray, Father, that what we have heard today, as sober as it may be, would would be the instrument you might use in our lives to give us pause, to give us a thought of can we do better? Not because we're earning a salvation that came by faith alone, Father, but because pleasing you is the call of, of every Christian's life. And it's a high standard, according to your word. That we are to be perfect like our Father in heaven is perfect, Jesus told us. And that you've helped great gifts and for those who please you, but you've also made clear by your parables and elsewhere that there's real loss, there's real forfeiture for those who would take what you've given us and bury it, hide it as it were. So I ask, Father, that whatever has been heard this morning, whatever has made it into the hearts of those who've been in this room this morning, Father, would be something according to your will, by your spirit, informed by your word, with the conviction that's appropriate, Father, and one that leads to better things. For, Father, we don't want to test you, we don't try you, and we certainly don't want to take the risk that in our immaturity you leave us where we place ourselves. So, Father, call us out. Let this be that moment, if it would be, that you would permit us to return if we, if we need to return. And if we are pursuing maturity, Father, if that is the call that we are seeking, then encourage us on all the more today, Father. As we enjoy our fellowship with each other this afternoon, let, let that be a time of reflection as well, perhaps conversations and prayer opportunities to consider where we go next. And thank you, Father, that it can end in this time of communion, that through this simple act of remembrance, we can consider what real obedience looked like in the day that your son put himself on that cross. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.